0: Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctksnc.com. Morning, church, and thanks for that word, Alex. Um, very encouraging and I don't know about you guys. I'm like, well, I've heard a good word today. I'm ready to, let's pray it out and go home. But uh, we still have a sermon to to preach. But thank you for that word, Alex. Um, Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. Um, I wonder, any guys, uh, did did you know, everybody know it was Mother's Day when you got here, fellas? You know that, right? Call your mama. Uh, All right. I see you back there. Yeah. Call your mothers. And um, a little preacher privilege here. Um, I think my mother is probably watching on the live stream. Uh, So, mom. Love you. Happy Mother's Day. Also, Janice, my stepmother, Linda, my mother-in-law, happy Mother's Day to you. I've already told my wife she'll be at the 11, but happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in my life. Um, yes. Yeah. There you go. We can, we can thank our mothers. That's <laughs> leadership, Trent. Way to go, man. <laughs> All right, we're doing a series in the book of Genesis, and currently we're going through the life of Jacob, and today we're going to look at how Jacob got more than he bargained for. Um, here's where we are. If you'll remember from two chapters ago, Genesis chapter 27, Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, um, they deceived his father, Isaac, into giving the blessing, the family blessing to Jacob. And so his brother, his older brother, Esau, was furious about this, and he badly wanted to kill Jacob. He threatened him, so Jacob was terrified, and he decided to flee for his life. But just before he left, Isaac, his father, called him in and told Jacob exactly where to go and what to do. And when he got there, so here's what he said. This is Genesis 28, verse 2. Isaac said, Jacob, arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So, Jacob leaves his father's estate. He couldn't take anything with him. He had to leave in a bit of a rush. Uh, and he pretty much had $20 in his pocket and a tank of gas and hit the door. Just out to go to this other long journey away. And as Ben Reynolds said last week in his sermon, uh, Padan Aram is about 500 miles away. So this is a very, very long journey by those. but It's a long trip today, but it was, it was a very long journey in the ancient standards. Um, so he's going away from his hometown and his family to this new and unfamiliar place. And that's where we land in Genesis chapter 29. So what I am going to show you today is how God's providence was at work in Jacob's life. Not only to provide a wife for Jacob, as his father had said when he sent him away but also to discipline Jacob. God's providence provided for him, but also disciplined Jacob in his own sin of deception. And so what we're going to see is that God took Jacob's pattern of deceit and brought it back on his head through his uncle Laban. So uncle Laban, this guy, he had a graduate degree in deceit. And Jacob is about to swallow a shovel full of deception. It's going to be interesting. You ready to do this? All right, one of you. Let's dig in. Genesis 29. Genesis 29. Let's um we'll read 30 verses. Well, we'll we'll cover 30 verses today. Starting in verse 1, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large when all the flocks were gathered there the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back over its place put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well Jacob said to them My brothers where do you come from They said We are from Haran He said to them Do you know Laban the son of Nahor They said We know him He said to them Is it well with him They said It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now let's pause for a second. Okay, so having completed this 500-mile journey, Jacob arrives at Paddan Aram by this well of water, and when he shows up, he learns that his uncle Laban lives nearby and also learns that Rachel is a shepherdess and behold, she's showing up with the sheep right at that moment. So it's perfect timing. God's providence was leading, leading him there and putting all this together. So he's there to find a wife and his dad told him, find a wife from one of Laban's daughters and this is one of Laban's daughters and uh, everything is coming together exactly the way hoped. he'd hoped. So he meets her, he greets her, he kisses her, he weeps aloud, he goes into her house, and he meets Laban, her father. Now, verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, no, he's been there for a month at this point. Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? So initially, Jacob was, was treated like an honored guest. So he's brought into the home and just kind of uh, brought in and shown hospitality. And they, they fed him and he lived there. But it soon becomes evident that Jacob's broke. He doesn't have a lot of money. So if you remember from previous episode, we've met Laban before. I mentioned it then in Genesis 24. In Genesis 24, Laban was Rebekah's brother. And he negotiated with Abraham's servant for Rebekah's hand in marriage. And the servant took him back to Isaac. If you remember that, Genesis 24. So whenever that happened, the servant of Abraham, he came with lots of cash. And when he met Rebekah, he gave Laban some money and he gave, you know, the, gave Rebekah jewelry and everybody kind of benefited when he showed up. So here's Jacob and Laban's thinking, okay, I've seen this scene before. Um, Jacob surely has got this caravan that will arrive any moment now with all kinds of costly gifts and money, but a month goes by and it's still just Jacob and Jacob doesn't have anything. So what happened is that um, Jacob, Jacob is demoted. Laban is like, okay, you're not here with the bride price. I'm not going to benefit from this. So tell you what, why don't you just work for me and you name your wages and I'll put you on my staff and I'll employ you. So he treats him like a hired hand. It, it, it's, it's a bit of a step down. And Jacob, he didn't have any money to pay for a bride price, but he does have another plan up his sleeve. Now here's how this goes down. Look at verse 16. So Laban says, what shall your wages be? Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. Now we already know Jacob wants to marry marry his daughter. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Okay, Rachel was the younger sister, and she's a pretty girl. It says that she was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob was infatuated with her. He loved her. He was excited to be with her. Leah was the older sister, and the way that the text reads, we can assume that she was not as attractive as her younger sister. It says that she had weak eyes. Now, that could mean one of two things. It could mean that she was unattractive, meaning that her appearance appearance was weak, the the sight of her was weak, so she wasn't as attractive. Another, Another way you could take it is that her eyes were attractive, but that was her most striking feature. Either way, the comparison is that Leah is either unattractive or she has one attractive feature, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So everything about Rachel was lovely, and that's why Jacob was so drawn to her. So Leah was, was not the loved of the two sisters. She was overlooked. She wasn't the preferred sibling. Now, is anything sounding familiar yet? We have two siblings, an older and a younger, and one is preferred over the other, and the preferred sibling is the younger one. Maybe that sounds familiar. Does that sound like Jacob and Esau? We've seen this before. So Jacob's problem was that he loved Rachel, but he didn't have money to pay a bride price. Now, I'm not going to go into explain what that's all about, nor about, well, I won't mention that just yet, but there's some things I'm not going to explain here, but I wrote a blog post about it, and I'm going to post it. um, It's posted on my website now, and I'll put a link to it on Facebook uh, later on this week. But if you want to go to my website, dmichaelclary.com, I've got an article about polygamy and other things that kind of explain the practices going down here. So if you want to check that out, dmichaelclary.com, you can read it there. So Jacob didn't have the money to pay for a bride price. And so what he does is he offers to work. He offers his labor. And he says, I'll, I'll work for you seven years for, this, uh, for your daughter to marry Rachel. Now, Laban has a problem. Laban's problem is that the custom required him to maintain the birth order. And the, the custom is that the older daughters would always marry first, right? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 21 Then Jacob said to Laban, so these are seven years he's been working. Then Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. So pause here. Jacob keeps his word, and after working seven years, he's eager to be married to his wife and take his bride. Laban makes these preparations, and he assembles this wedding feast to celebrate. So there's lots of food and... Lots of wine, as you would do in these days, as you would do in these days. You would have lots of wine at a wedding feast. And then later in the evening, here's what you would assume to happen. Later in the evening, Laban would present the bride to her husband, and they would consummate the marriage. But the the dad would present the bride to the husband for that uh, marriage to be consummated. All right, verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah. That's not the one that Jacob wanted. He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, I love this, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. (laughs) That's just hilarious. (laughs) Behold, it was Leah. It's like, oh my goodness, what just happened to me? Uh, And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So how did this happen? Well, it was evening time, so it would have been dark, and uh, Jacob had been drinking because it was a wedding, and likely Leah would have been wearing a veil. So she, her face was covered, and so he, it was dark, she was covered, and he had been drinking, so he's not thinking that somebody might accidentally switch out the, 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 right, the wrong daughter. But, In the morning light, Jacob wakes up and behold, it was Leah. He had slept with the wrong woman. Now, that may not... The significance of that is probably lost on many of us because in the modern world, we're just like, boy, that was weird and that wouldn't mean anything else. But in the ancient world, they saw that sex and marriage go together. And so if if a man were to have sex with a virgin... The honorable man would take her to be his wife. And this is actually part of the Old Testament law. Exodus 22 verse 16 says this. If a man seduces a virgin. So not exactly the same situation, but there's a principle here. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. So Jacob and Laban both believed that sex and marriage belong together. And so this is what happened. Jacob knew what this meant, that he was now obligated by custom and later by law, he's obligated to take this woman to be his wife and to pay a bride price for her. So naturally, Jacob is livid. How dare Laban deceive him? Who dares deceive Jacob? Well, by what Laban did by switching the firstborn and the secondborn is something that Jacob himself had done. He did it to his dad whenever he presented himself as Esau, when actually he's not Esau. See, do you see what's happening here? Providentially, God is working things out to where Jacob is getting a taste of his own medicine. Switching the birth order is exactly what he had done before. Verse 26, so Jacob responds, he's incredulous, why'd you do this? Verse 26, Laban said, it is not so done in our country. To give the younger before the firstborn. Now that's a jab. That's a bit of a subtle jab. He's like saying, well, maybe where you come from, you switch up the birth order and it doesn't matter. But over here in our country, we do things the right way. We maintain the custom in the birth order. So, Jacob, I don't know what, how things are with you, but we do things by the book over here. Verse 27, Laban continues, complete the week. A week is a period of seven years, just a week of years. Complete seven years, the week of this one, Leah and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. So from the way that it appears, Jacob married Rachel right away. So he married Leah. Behold, it was, or behold, it was Leah. And then he uh, went to Laban. He was all upset. And Laban said, hey, complete the week of Leah, and I'll give you Rachel also in return for serving me another seven years. And then presumably, it, it, the way the text reads, it's, it's not exactly crystal clear, but it's, uh, it's fairly evident that, that he married Rachel right away, but then continued to honor his word and serve another seven years. So he's on the hook to work for Laban another seven years. That's 14 years for these two daughters. Laban, he got what he wanted. He got it through deceit, but he got what he wanted. Both of his daughters got married, and he got 14 years of hard labor out of it for a bride price. Jacob also got what he wanted, but he got more than he bargained for. He was duped into a second marriage that he didn't want. So even though Jacob, when he left his home, he fled one sibling rivalry with Esau, his brother, and then he married into another one. And even these marriages created a new sibling rivalry between Rachel and Leah. And this tension between Leah and Rachel is going to continue to escalate, yet God will providentially use it to fulfill his purpose. Now, we're not going to get into all that this week. That's Next week is the the tension between Rachel and Leah. So for today, for the rest of our time, um, I, want to, I want to focus on three points of application. What can we learn? What does God teach us through this text, and how do we apply it to our lives? So I have three main points of application. The first one, simply this, we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Through God's divine providence, Jacob reaped the deception that he had sown, right? Right? This principle reflects God's nature. It's how God ordered the world because God is a God of order, not of confusion. So if we lived in a world where actions had no consequences, imagine the chaos that we would have as a result. So this is part of God's ordering of the world because God is a God of order. We see this taught in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows that will he also reap. So if, if somebody sows a pattern of anger, eventually he will reap a harvest of broken relationships. If somebody sows a pattern of envy or jealousy, eventually he will reap a harvest of bitterness and discontent. If somebody sows an attitude of smug self-righteousness, eventually they will reap a, har- a, a harvest of humiliation. Pride comes before the fall. If somebody sows a pattern of deception eventually his lies will come back to haunt him in one way or another. And on and on it goes. We reap what we sow. God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. We reap what we sow. Now sometimes the consequences of our sin are obvious. They're immediate and direct. Kind of like a kid touching a hot stove. There's an action and there's an immediate consequence and it it hurts them. And so the action and the consequence are obvious. They're immediate. But sometimes the consequences can take many, many years to fully materialize. And that's the sobering part, because it can take a long time sometimes. You know, there, there may be areas of compromise in your life that you're sowing right now, and because you're not experiencing an immediate consequence of it, like touching a hot stove, sort of think, well, there, there isn't a consequence. And I think, well, this is, this is fine, you know, no big deal here. But that consequence may not re- materialize for a long time. It may take 20 years. And then the consequences will manifest. You know, the consequences of sin also affect others around us. It may not just, it doesn't just hit us personally. I mean, it, it, it affects other people in our spheres. It could be our, our uh, they could affect your parents or your, or your children. It could affect husbands and wives. It could affect those relationships. It could affect your roommates or your friends, your boss, your co-workers. And going all the way back to Abraham in this family, deception was this generational pattern. You see, like, deception is sort of part of their family story. It's part of the dysfunction of this family. They commonly lied about the identity of their family members. So Abraham lied about the identity of his wife. He said that she's my sister, which is a half-truth because she was a half-sister. So maybe it's a quarter truth, I don't know. But it's like, he, he lied about his sister. Isaac did the same thing and lied about Rebekah, saying that she was his sister. Rebekah lied to Isaac about Jacob and Esau. Jacob lied to Isaac, pretending to be Esau. And now Laban lied to Jacob and switched Leah for Rachel. And so this extended family has sowed seeds of deception and now they're starting to reap a harvest of distrust and lies and dysfunction. And that's what's happening here with Jacob. He's reaping a harvest of this general, generational pattern of sin. Galatians 6 says sin has consequences. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. That's the first point. Here's the second point. The second point is that God will often providentially use one man's sin to teach another man not to sin. Let me see that again just so you, can, so you can get it. God will often providentially use one man's sin to teach another man not to sin. So God's hand of providence is always at work, right? I mean God is He's He's directing the affairs of the world. Nothing happens beyond God's control, even though God's hand of providence may often be hidden from our eyes. We don't, we don't always see it. So, and, and this is recognized universally. So if, if, whenever somebody reaps what they'd sown in a fittingly ironic way, what do Hindus call it? Karma, right? Now, in, in our modern secular world, we have a different term for it, which is poetic justice. We just say they're getting, what, they're getting what was coming to them in this ironic way, and it's, it's often funny. But Christians, we know, that, we know there's more going on here. This is God's providence at work in the principle of sowing and reaping. There was a couple years ago, there was this dude who, uh, he had this experience. He basically got his 15 minutes of fame with this prank that he did on live TV. It was a seemingly small thing, but on ESPN's college game day, uh, he held up this sign. And the sign had his Venmo account on it. And he was asking people to donate to his account for beer money, this college kid. Um, you know, of course, it was on ESPN. So people thought it was funny. And so people started sending him money. And then the news picked up about it. And they sort of did a story about it that it generated more publicity. And so more people that would go back and watch the clip, they would send him money. So this dude started uh, collecting a ton of cash for beer money because his Venmo account was, was getting known around the world. So, um, you know, as it goes, he decided that it's, he doesn't need, I don't know, however many thousands of dollars of beer money. So he just said, you know what, I want to pay it forward and donate all this money to charity. So he gave all this money to a children's hospital. And then, you know, to add more of the good vibes, Venmo and Anheuser-Busch, they decided we're going to match whatever Whatever donations, we're going to match it to this children's hospital too. That's, that's a great story, right? Well, there was a reporter who doesn't have a sense of humor. And uh, this reporter dug up some old tweets that the guy had done whenever he was 16 years old. Because as it turns out, 16-year-old kids can say stupid things online. And it, it doesn't stop when you're 16, I guess. <laughs> Anybody can do this. So he tweeted some crude jokes. Well, the reporter decided to humiliate this guy in the newspaper and you no, know, you reap what you sow, right? I mean, he tweeted something bad and he's reaping what he's sown. So, yeah, but there's even more to it because as it turns out, that readers of the newspaper didn't like how that reporter treated that guy and so they, the readers did a little tweet scraping of their own and they dug up some tweets that the reporter had, had tweeted, and so it, it turns out that that reporter had tweeted even worse things and more crude things than the 16-year-old kid did, or the guy when he was 16 years old. And so they're like, hey, we don't like that you're going to destroy this dude's reputation, so we're going to expose your hypocrisy and show the world what you had said. And then that reporter, he had to go on his own apology tour and you know, tell everybody what he had done wrong. That's, that's irony upon irony. That's karma, poetic justice, or as we might say as Christians, that's God's providence where you reap what you sow, and God is working these things out in the world. So what Laban did to deceive Jacob was sinful. Laban sinned against Jacob. That was evil. Nevertheless, Laban's sin was used by God as a rod of discipline to teach Jacob. That's true, too, because God can take sin and teach us from it. God took Jacob's own sin pattern of deception and visited it back on him in the form of Laban. Now, I've seen this happen in my own life. Those of you who have children, uh, you you know how God does this. That God will take your sin and put it in your kids and visit it back on you. (laughs) God has done this in my life many times when I get annoyed with my kids. I can't believe you're doing that. What's the matter with you? And then I realize, well, actually that's exactly the same thing I do. I just have a more grown-up version of it. (laughs) And my kids are... God is using these kids to show me what it looks like whenever my sin lives in somebody else. So parents, I mean, our kids are like these little Xerox machines, and they take your life, they're watching you all the time, and they copy your life. And so your outbursts of anger, your deception, all the things that, that you do that your kids see, they copy it. And so this this pattern develops of generational sin. In Genesis 27, Jacob was the deceiver. He switched the birth order when he deceived his father. But in Genesis 29, Jacob was the deceived. He was on the receiving end whenever Laban switched the birth order. And of course, whenever Laban deceived him, Jacob was incredulous. He didn't see it yet. He's like, what have you done to me? shoe was on the other foot. And whenever somebody mistreats us, we, we, we often think, you know, whenever something bad happens, like, what's our first instinct? Our first instinct is to get angry about it as though some grave injustice has been carried out against us. And whenever people sin against us, that's wrong, right? I mean, we have a right to be upset about it whenever somebody sins against us. And that can often obscure the lesson that God is teaching us in that. We can often miss the fact that God is taking our own sin pattern, putting it in somebody else, and then teaching us with it. So whenever we get upset and outraged, we're like, what have you done to me? How dare you? What gives you the right? Whenever we do those things, a lot of times we're we're incredulous in a self-righteous way because we don't see the fact that what was done to us is probably, or can be in, in many cases, something that we've done that God is bringing it back on us. So if you've been sinned against, it's only natural to be upset about it. But what if God is using that Sin that somebody else did against you to discipline you. Jacob didn't see it here. He was he was irate. And yet God's hand of providence was at work showing Jacob his sin. Things like we can be quick to 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 blame sin, to, to assign blame out there. Like the problems in my life are out there somewhere. Somebody else is wronging me. Somebody's mistreating me. They're doing me wrong. And not take responsibility for our part in the problem. The thing with Jacob, he was the perpetrator long before he was the victim of deception. And God gave him a taste of his own medicine. Now, in our modern society, we're masterfully trained and discipled into assigning blame on other people. You know, playing the victim, and it's somebody else's fault, and not take responsibility for ourselves. And so much more rarely do we look in the mirror and... Take account of our own lives and realize, have I contributed to this? Have have I made this situation worse? Am I reaping what I've sown? Or even prayerfully ask, Lord, are you disciplining me? That's a good thing to, to examine too. So if your boss is mistreating you, is it all his fault? Or have you spoken of him honorably? Have you gossiped? Have you been difficult? A difficult person to work with? Maybe you've contributed to the problem. If you didn't get the grade you think you deserved, well, have you given your best effort? Is it the teacher's fault? Is it the test's fault? Is it somebody else's fault? Or did you just not give it your best effort and you don't want to take responsibility for not doing the work? Let's say your husband isn't leading your home very well. Well, have, have you respected him and honored him? as the head of the home? Have you treated him with contempt? And Let's say that your wife is nagging you. Well, if, if she's getting on your case, have you been passive? Have you been lazy? Have you been indecisive? Have you been easy to follow? It's so easy to, to find the blame out there somewhere. And it's so much harder to take a look in the mirror and realize that I've, I've, I've contributed to this problem. I'm reaping what I've sown. I'm God is God is giving me a taste of my own medicine. So we need to be more honest with ourselves because most of our problems are not out there somewhere. Most of our problems, we've at least contributed to them in some way. But I think if we're being honest, a lot of our problems are things that. Just like that God is teaching us and we're reaping what we've sown. Not every time. I'm not saying that every time. But that, that is the case oftentimes. And surely less than we will admit. So change can happen then. And we can learn whenever we trust God's grace and believe the gospel. And take responsibility. And then we repent of our sin. So here's a the, here's the third point. Third point is this. God will providentially, God providentially works through evil to bring about a glorious good that we can't always see. God providentially works through evil, the sin done in our lives, to bring about a glorious good that we can't always see. Now, this is a theme that we see here in this chapter, but it's going to continue to play itself out in the rest of the book is going to come into full bloom whenever it is explicitly stated in Genesis chapter 50 in the life of Joseph in this famous verse Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 Joseph said as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today Do you see that there What Joseph's brothers intended to For evil, they had evil intent. God was able to providentially, in His power and divine sovereign power, to take that sin, that evil, and work it out to bring about something wonderful. Now, that is poetic justice. That is a beautiful display of God's power at work in the world to where the consequences of our sin, we might experience them in one way for our discipline, and God will work them in another way to bring about something good and glorious. And we believe that. I mean, the gospel gospel shows us that that is the case. Let me show you another example. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. So this is in the Ten Commandments. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now get this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So there's generational sin we see. God will, God will allow generational sin to play itself out, but grace breaks the pattern. Showing, but God continues, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you see that? When God redeemed his people out of Egypt, he broke that pattern and said there's a new way to be. There's, there's a generational sin that can, that can be passed down three or four generations. But there's also a grace pattern that upends the normal way of things where God brings good for thousands, thousands of generations. So grace breaks the pattern of intergenerational sin. Now this is true of the evil that we've done and the evil that is done to us. So both the things, the bad things that we've done and the bad things done to us, God will always work something wonderful out of it, glorious out of it. So whenever people screw up, whenever you screw up or I screw up, we're, we're giving God lemons, we're giving God sin, and God makes lemonade with it. God makes it beautiful, makes it wonderful. And probably the most famous verse of this is Romans 8:28. This is, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we can take great comfort in that, because not only is there comfort that the things that have been done to us that are truly wrong and unjust, God will work that out to a good purpose, but also the things that we've done that are sinful and unjust to other people, God will also work that out to a good and glorious purpose. Ultimately, our failures and our sins can't cancel out God's purpose. God always takes our lemons and makes lemonade. God takes the sin we do and the sin that is done to us and somehow weaves them together into his purpose to perfectly bring about what he ordains. And the best example of this is in the cross of Christ. Acts 22, verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that's a good thing. God's sovereignly in this work. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So this evil, most wicked thing that could be possibly done to murder, or crucify the son of God, God worked something beautiful out of it. And that was according to his plan and purpose. His, his, his providence was at work here. He brilliantly wove human sin and evil into the fabric of divine good. And so we've got these two truths that we we need to hold them in tension. I mean, on the one hand, God holds people accountable for the sin and evil we do. We reap what we sow. That's true. And yet, God uses that sin and evil to bring about an ultimate good because God's purposes can never be thwarted. That's also true. And all of this is enabled by his, his grace that, that, that covers us in our sin and disciplines us for our sin so that we can learn not to sin, and yet when we do sin, he brings something good out of it. And of course, Jesus is Lord. God is sovereign over the past, the present, and the future, and he's better at making lemonade than Chick-fil-A. And we trust God that he will bring good from the evil that has been done to us and from the evil that we've done to others. So whenever we screw up and we make a mess of things, yeah, God may discipline us. God may take that sin, put it in somebody else, visit it back on us to train us not to sin. So what do we do? I mean, we, 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 we recognize it when we see it happen. We ask God to help us to see it. And then when we see it, we confess it and repent. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we make changes going forward. So it's like we're driving down this road and it's the road of grace And on this road, we've got the road ahead and the road behind. In the rearview mirror, we look and we can see the road behind us. And we trust that God can make something good and beautiful out of all the things that's in our past. And then on the road ahead, in the windshield in front of us, we trust God for his strength and power to keep us from sinning again in the future. And God's grace extends the whole line. At every point, God's grace is is working in and through every situation. And the bad things you do, the bad things done to you. And his grace is working out something good in all those situations. All of this is by his grace purchased for us at the cross through Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And ultimately see the pattern of sowing and reaping fulfilled and overturned in a way by grace in our own lives. So at the cross, Jesus reaped what we had sown. He shielded us from the worst consequences of our sin, which is eternal hell, apart from God. We sowed sin and rebellion, and Jesus reaped judgment and death on our behalf. And then at his resurrection, we reap what Jesus had sown. Jesus sowed life and healing and redemption and forgiveness and love, and we reap that. We reap eternal life from him because that's who he is. We reap his life, his righteousness, and his perfection. And for all eternity, we will continue to reap the fruits of that reward like a tree that is always in bloom. We're continually feasting on the grace of Jesus. And we'll sip on his grace like a cold glass of lemonade, too. Because that's what he does with our evil. He takes our sin, takes our lemons, and he makes lemonade, this eternal lemonade, (laughs) that forever we will drink and be refreshed in his grace. Amen. Well, let's pray. Thank you Jesus, for your grace that we can see in in the story here of Jacob that you are merciful towards those who have sinned, and yet you also teach and discipline them. Father, thank you for, um, for the life of Jacob and for the things that he experienced that can be good for our instruction and we thank you for Jesus at the cross that we can we can know that ultimately that we do not experience the full weight of reaping what we sow because at the cross we reap eternal life and forgiveness and you receive what is rightfully ours. And we thank you Jesus for this grace in our lives and we pray God that you will, you will weave this grace into our lives so that we can both have comfort and forgiveness regarding the things in our past that we've done to other people. And in the moment, we can take responsibility for the sins in our own lives. And we can be looking for your providence and what you're teaching us. And in the future, we can repent and grow, believing in your power to overcome sin and temptation. And we thank you, Jesus, that it is not by our own effort. It is not by our works. We are not saved or any, anything of the sort because of our own effort. But it is all by the grace of God that is purchased for us at the cross. And so we thank you, Jesus, for the cross. And we thank you for your death and resurrection that is life for us, that we reap what you sowed. You sowed eternal life, and we reap it in our own lives. Lord, we thank you today for mothers, and we thank you for the good and glorious gift and blessing that mothers are. We thank you, Jesus, that part of your incarnation was to, to be born of a woman. You had a mother. And we thank you for, for that example. Thank you for your mother. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have given us the pattern not only of um, motherhood in the natural way, but also the spirit of motherhood as we saw in Romans 16. And Lord, I pray that we will honor the spirit of motherhood and uh, biological motherhood and all other kinds of motherhood in our church. Thank you for that gift. We give you all praise and glory in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcincy.com.